I, uh, I like seeing looks in everybody's face when you realize Mike isn't here today. Like, like wait, it's Sunday, it's beautiful, it's spring break. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> D- don't worry, your attendance has been noted. It'll be passed along to the uh, governing authorities. Uh, Mike's in South Africa. Uh, Lori, they're on the back end of a mission trip there, and he asked me if I would speak. My name's Brett. My wife and I have been uh, coming to Grace Point here for a couple years now. Hey, um, have you ever believed something partially, like not quite all the way? Um, I have this in, in my life when it comes to my diet, all right? So I believe the best diet for me, the best way for me to eat is to eat a diet that is, for the most part, no added sugar, low carbohydrates, no processed foods, um, lots of meat and vegetables, something like, uh, like this, all right? So I, I think when I eat that way, I feel great. I got a lot of energy. I sleep great. My pants fit. It's good, all right? But I, so I believe that. However, I have this other belief going on at the same time. And that is that carbohydrates and sugar are really stinking good, right? (laughs) And like the ultimate expression of that is in the donut, right? Fried carbohydrates with sugar. I love it. And so because I have these two kind of conflicting things going on, I end up with my diet that looks like this. You've heard of paleo. What about the paleo dough? Lots of meat and then some donuts, right? Uh, that's trademarks pending on that, by the way. Um, I think I'm onto something here. Uh, that would be a best-selling book, The Paleo Diet. But it's living this life with this tension of kind of one core belief and then this other core belief. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to the New Testament book of First Timothy chapter 1. What we're going to talk about today is what it means to live with one belief, one core belief that governs everything we are. To fully accept one truth and not have these multiple kind of competing things going on, this paleo thing happening in our life. For most of my life, I lived following the gospel. I was born in a pastor's home. I knew the basic premise of the gospel, right? I understood the meats, the vegetables, and the kale. I, I got all that. But at the same time, there were these other things, habits, beliefs, attitudes, actions that were going on inside me at the same time. And so I was kind of living this paleo gospel where like on the outside, everything looked kind of good, but on the inside, there was this other stuff happening and I was kind of a mess. And so today we're going to talk about what it means to fully accept the gospel, to live by one truth in our life. We've got a lot to cover, but it's going to be actually really simple. We're going to look at one verse. That verse has two ideas, two simple ideas. But these ideas have so much depth of application for every single one of us. And um, it's a lifetime journey to live these two ideas. Okay, you ready? Let's look at what Paul says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I've bolded the words full acceptance. If you have your Bible, if you're like an underliner, highlighter person, 
I want you to underline or highlight the words full acceptance. Because the question for us today, I'm not just asking, do you believe the gospel or have you ever accepted the gospel? The question for all of us is, do I live in such a way that I have fully accepted the gospel into my life? Full acceptance. Most of us don't live that way every day. Most of us live in the paleo version of the gospel where we believe it, the major premises, the major parts of it. Yes, we agree with the message of the gospel. Most of, if we were to do a poll in this room and say, how many people in this room have, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but have ever accepted the gospel? Most of us would have a time of place where we can look back and say, yeah, like I, I know I'm a follower of Christ. I can look back to a, a period of time in my life or whatever where I, where I accepted the gospel. But if we ask, how many of us are living as if the gospel were 100% fully accepted as the only truth in our life? A lot of hands would go down. So what does it mean for us to fully accept the gospel? Two ideas. First of all, in order for me to fully accept the gospel, we have to fully accept our own brokenness. I think you have ours on your guide. Why don't you cross out and put my. In order to fully accept the gospel... I have to fully accept my brokenness. I want to look at the last half of this verse. I want to see how Paul describes himself. First Timothy chapter one, verse 15, Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. What he's saying there is he came to save sinners and I am the first. Some versions might say, I am the chief. I am the biggest. I am the first in line. I am the biggest sinner there is. And that's who God came to save. And we cannot fully accept the gospel until we fully accept this reality of our existence that we're broken. Fully, fully, fully broken. Now, I want us to think about who's writing this, okay? Keep in mind who's writing that they are the foremost chief of all sinners. This guy's name is Paul. He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. He, uh, he was born as a Roman citizen, but he was also Jewish. He probably had some wealth or some means in his family. He lived in Jerusalem and studied under a Hebrew scholar by the name of Galileo. He was what the um, Jewish people call the Pharisee. These guys memorized massive Massive amounts, if not the entirety of the Old Testament, just memorization. They wrote extra laws and rules around the Ten Commandments to help them understand what they fully meant. And they made every effort every day to live perfect lives, to obey the laws as they understood them because they thought that was the path to God. Paul was so committed to following God in this way that when the church first began, Paul was against the church because what they were preaching in his mind went against the Old Testament. And so he actually was so passionate about protecting his way of belief that he persecuted the church. He was present at the stoning of the very first martyr in the New Testament. God changes Paul's life. He gets him on this horse. He knocks him off. He's blinded. Paul goes off and learns about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Then he begins these missionary journeys. He journeys around all of like Eastern Europe, Asia, teaching people about Jesus, building the church, preaching all over the place, three different missionary journeys. At least seven times during that process, he was beaten almost to death. Three different times he was put in prison, which is where he wrote most of the scripture. He said himself that he was in three shipwrecks, endured constant dangers for the sake of Christ. 
I mean, this guy isn't the first in line of sinners. He's an all-star. He's like a better Christian than Mike. And here's what he's saying about himself. I am the first in line. I'm the worst sinner. This is a biblical idea that actually Jesus taught us. In Jesus' very first sermon that he preached, the very first point on his outline was this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That leaves us to a a spiritual principle that I want us to learn today. And it's real simple. At the cross the ground is level. At the cross, the ground is level. What does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that Paul, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, literally gave sweat, blood, tears on on behalf of the gospel of Christ, needed Jesus more than anyone in the world. It means that Mike and Randy and Wade and the staff of this church, guys who go to seminary and live their life studying this this book, leading others to follow this book, they need Jesus more than any person in the world. It means that if you're just an average Joe Blow person who's you know living in Bentonville, going about your life, trying to be a good mom, trying to be a good dad, overall being a very good moral person, that that's not enough, that you need Jesus more than any person alive. It means that if, you know, your face ends up on the Washington County Sheriff's mugshot app because your life is a complete and utter train wreck, you need Jesus more than any person alive. At the cross, the ground is level, and you can write this one down. No one needs Jesus more than you or me, right? First person. No one needs Jesus more than me. The ground is level at the cross. And this attitude is exactly what Jesus is describing when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word, poor in spirit, the the language he's using is a financial kind of language. It means blessed is the person who is completely poverty stricken, bankrupt is the idea. The person who has absolutely zero ability to help themselves. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And this is what it means when we embrace our brokenness, we're adopting this attitude of Jesus that Jesus talked about. We're adopting the attitude of being poor in spirit. I am broken. I have nothing. Christians have always struggled with this idea. Always, from the beginning of time. Paul writes in the book of Romans to the early church, there were some people there who were Jewish and some people there who were Greek. And the Jewish people thought that they were like better than the Greeks, right? So what does Paul say about them? Paul writes to them and he says, what should we say then? Are we better than them? Not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. They've all turned aside. They've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouths are full of cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The peace and the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God in their eyes. I mean, that's, I don't understand exactly what all that means, the poison of asp in their list, but like that is a dark 
description, and it's a description of you and of me apart from Jesus Christ. What we tend to do is scoreboard things, right? I got this sin. This is the big ugly stuff over here. I got this stuff. It's not quite as bad. It's tolerable. I got this stuff that I don't even really care about, right? But the reality of of it is we are poor in spirit. Tim Keller describes being poor in spirit this way. He says, it means seeing you are deeply in debt before God. You have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means that we have no ability to save ourselves. We have nothing we can bring to God. Oswald Chambers has a devotional. He lived a long time ago. His devotional called Metmos for His Highest. You can read it at myotmost.org on your um, computer or whatever. And on March 8th of this year, he, this was the devotional entry. It said, the first thing we must surrender is all of our pretense or deceit. What our Lord wants us to present to him is not our goodness or honesty or efforts to do better, but actual solid sin. That is the only thing he can take from us. We can't fully embrace the gospel until we fully accept our brokenness and become poor in spirit. But Tim Keller has this idea that most of us actually don't live poor in spirit. We live what he calls middle class in spirit. Let's talk about what the middle class in spirit neighborhood looks like, right? It looks like this. I believe the gospel. It's a part of my life. But I don't really get desperate until the job situation's sketchy, until I don't know how to parent my kids, until there's a conflict in a relationship, until the money is coming to an end, until something exterior makes me get really desperate. Then maybe I'll come back to God, and then pretty soon... Back on my own, self-sufficient, I'm middle class. I can handle most things on my own. So how do we know? How do we know if we're living middle class or poor in spirit? This is an exhaustive list, but I got three things for us today, okay? Ready? Number one, I am not fully accepting my brokenness when I minimize my sin. I'm only partially accepting my brokenness when I minimize my sin. Perhaps there's no more clear sign that we are not fully accepting our brokenness than when we minimize sin. And you know what's crazy? This is like the first thing we learn to do as Christians. Real early on, we kind of figure out how to talk about our sin in such a way that it's acceptable, right? I mean, we know we can't say we don't have any sin, so we, we can't be too perfect, so we kind of migrate over here. Like, okay, what can I identify in my life that everybody around me will think is okay? But it can't be too far this way either because I don't want anybody to think that I'm actually a total mess. And so we kind of find this middle ground, the acceptable stuff that everybody can talk about. Like, oh, you know, I had a little trouble with my temper or sometimes I tend to be a little materialistic. You know what I mean? Like the grade A kind of stuff that's okay. Like, oh yeah, we all know that's a problem, but it's not really that big of a problem because everybody else feels that way too. And we find these little cracks and crevices and we just live there and we just minimize. And I do that because I have too much pride, no poverty of spirit. I'm too middle class. I think I can manage it on my own. The second thing, the second sign that I'm only partially accepting my brokenness is when I have a lack of vulnerability in my relationships. A lack of vulnerability in my relationships. 
This is a closely related cousin to minimizing my sin. And that is a lack of vulnerability in my relationships. I lack vulnerability in my relationships, so there's not a place where I can freely and consistently share my sin, as well as my struggles, my fears, my hurts, and pains. And that's a sign that I haven't really accepted my brokenness. I don't want you to know what's wrong with me. And here's what we start to believe. We believe that if we were to really be vulnerable with people around us, it's, it's fear. We think we're going to drive them away, right? I don't want you to know what's really happening down deep inside here. If you saw that, you wouldn't want to be my friend, wouldn't be in my small group, wouldn't want to go to my church, blah, blah, blah. When actually the irony of the whole thing is vulnerability has a connecting trait in our life. Think about the people that you're drawn to. It's the people who are honest and open and vulnerable with their hurts, fears, and pains. But Satan lies to us and says, don't show anybody that stuff. They'll reject you. The reality of it is, is that when we live vulnerable, we actually live closer and connected than we would any other way. The third test that I'm only partially accepting my brokenness is when I have apathy about the gospel, church, and other people. One last sign that we are only partially accepting our brokenness is apathy about the gospel, the church, and other people. Again, I'll quote Tim Keller. He said it this way. The gospel will never electrify you as long as you remain middle class in spirit. Listen, isn't what we want to be electrified by the story? I mean, we want to want that, don't we? Let me tell you what I don't want to do. I don't want to go through all the effort, waking up on Sunday morning, trying to get my three kids fed, like out of bed, fed, dressed in an outfit that's somewhat appropriate for church and not like a camping trip, get to church, hear the message, and walk out of here and just go on about with life because we just checked the box. Like the last thing any of us need are more boxes to check in our life, right? I don't want to wake up in the mornings and go about my day and have this thing hanging over my head. Like you really should read the Bible today. You really should maybe pray. You really should connect to Jesus. It's just kind of this guilt thing. Like we don't want to live like that. I got plenty of other guilts in my life. How do we want to live? We want to live passionate and electrified by the gospel. I want this to matter. I want this to be the source of power. I want to want this thing. I want to want to come here on Sunday to worship. I want to want to open my Bible and talk with God and get something out of it that's meaningful because I'm so desperate to hear from him that I can't make it through my day unless I do. That's being poor in spirit. If you look back, there's an ebb and a flow to that for all of us, right? But if you look back in your life when this thing your relationship with Christ and the message of the gospel wasn't something to be apathetic about, but it was something that was electric. I promise you, you will find in those times you were poor in spirit. You were recognizing you were broken and you were desperate because you needed Jesus. And I lived a whole lot of my life, the majority of my life as a follower of Christ. Not really that way. So if we're going to fully accept the gospel we have to fully accept our brokenness. It means being poor in spirit, completely bankrupt on my own. When I minimize my sin, when I live without vulnerable relationships, when I'm apathetic about the gospel of the church, I'm not fully accepting my condition. I want you to think about one thing. I want to go back to the vulnerability thing because this is important. 
I want you to think about the last time you sat down with another person. You looked them eye to eye and you said, hey, I'm struggling with this. I can't stop doing this. I'm hurt because of this. I have this pain that I've been carrying around. When was the last time you had a conversation that went like that? If it's been a long time, probably not live in vulnerable relationships, which means you're probably not really fully accepting your brokenness, which means we're not living fully accepting the gospel. Second thing we have to fully accept, if I'm going to fully accept the gospel, not only do I have to fully accept my brokenness, I need to fully accept Jesus' purpose. I need to fully accept Jesus' purpose. I think there's some confusion. This whole series has been titled uh, Re-Jesus. It's kind of like recapturing the truth of who Jesus is, right? So um, I want to kind of think about recapturing the true purpose of why Jesus came because I think it's easier for us to get confused because we hear about all these things that Jesus can and does do for us, right? Like, hey, Jesus can make you a better parent, father, mother, spouse, Jesus can help you be a better employee, a better employer, a better leader. Jesus came to restore social justice. Jesus came to heal the sick and fix the wounded. Jesus came to um, bring peace to your home. Those are all things that Jesus can and does do. But we need to reconnect to the primary purpose that Jesus came. The primary reason Jesus came is to save you from the penalty and power of sin. The primary reason Jesus came is to save you from the power and the penalty of sin. Now, let me tell you how we don't fully accept this. I think most of us understand this penalty of sin thing. See if you can finish this verse. The wages of sin is death. So the penalty for sin we know is eternity separated from God. And most of us, when we first came to the gospel and came to a relationship with Christ, we understood, hey, Jesus is removing the penalty of sin, which is death, the consequence of sin in my life, which would be death and separation from God. And so we come to God understanding, I'm going to get out of this relationship with you an eternity that's secure with you. What we don't understand as much is the power of sin. That Jesus came also to defeat the power of sin, and that is the daily battle with sin in our lives. How many of you, I'm going to ask for a show of hands here, still battle sin every day in your life, right? That's the fight. You know that Jesus came to make that fight winnable for us. Paul said it this way, Romans chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. I'm just going to read the end. He came so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Skipping down to verse 18, having been freed from sin, you became slain to righteousness. Primary purpose of Jesus. He's got this ruthless focus. He cares about you being a parent. He cares about you being an employee. He cares about you being a leader. He can and will make you better at all those things, but he has a ruthless focus on your soul. He came to save you from the power and penalty of sin. But most of of us still battle with this power of sin every day. So let's do this thing again. Three things, not an exhaustive list. Three ways to know you've only partially accepted Jesus' purpose. Three ways to know that we're not really understanding how Jesus came to defeat the power of sin. The first one is this. If you... I am only partially accepting Jesus' purpose when I live in constant frustration in my desire to change. 
I'm only partially accepting Jesus' purpose when I live in constant frustration and my desire to change. What I'm about to show you is how I live my life as a follower of Christ until about a year and a half ago, as long as I can remember. And it's what a pastor by the name of Matt Chandler uh, refers to as the cycle of doom. Okay, in a case you're wondering, the title doesn't make it clear. The cycle of doom is bad. Here's how most of us fight sin in our life. We do something that's wrong. We either read our Bible or we come to church. We sing a song. We feel conviction about that. So then we pray and promise, right? We pray, we ask God, help me not do that again. We promise God we're never going to do that again. And then time passes. And we're sincere in that, by the way. Like in that moment, we mean it 100%. I hate that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I want to change. Time goes by. And I mean, look, it can be five minutes, like on your way back out to the parking lot. Or it can be weeks, days, months. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And on and on you go in the cycle, in the cycle, in the cycle. And then you're frustrated because you're like, why can't I change? And you start to say things like, God, I've done everything I can to change. Right? When the reality of it is, we actually haven't done anything. We've never reached out for help. We've never told another person. We've never gone to counseling. We've never had a pastor. We just lived in the cycle on our own, on our own, on our own. Sincere, sincere as we could be. But as soon as we get out of the prayer and promise, we go back to doing it on our own, and it just over and over and over again. And that leads to frustration, doesn't it? How many of you would say you've tried to fight sin that way in your life? Anybody brave enough? I have. Can I tell you something? It's called the cycle of doom, because if you do that, you're doomed. (laughs) You won't win that battle. There's a better way, and I'm going to talk about it in a minute. The second sign that we are not really understanding or fully accepting God's purpose is shame. Shame. Listen, Christians really struggle with shame because it's really closely related to conviction. We do something that's wrong and we feel conviction about it. But after a while, especially after a while of living inside the cycle of doom, instead of feeling conviction, we start to feel shame. Brene Brown is a researcher And uh, she studied a lot of stuff about shame and vulnerability. And she defines shame as this, an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. This whole idea of being unworthy of connection, that's what shame does. And this is what makes shame different than conviction, right? Conviction is God saying, you did something wrong, come back to me. The the biblical term there is repent. Turn around from the way you're going and come back to me. Shame, on the other hand, is our emotional response to pain that leads us not back to God or back to other people, but away from God and away to other people into isolation, We see this the very first time sin happens. Let's think back to the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve are living in the Garden of Eden. They're together with God. They eat the fruit of the tree. They know they've sinned. What do they do next? Anybody know? They hide. Thank you. They hide from God. Why do they hide? They tell God, 
we hid from you because we were naked and ashamed. So God has to like kill an animal and make them clothes and put clothes on them. I mean, can you imagine being so free of shame that you just like walked around the garden with God completely naked? I mean, that's crazy. But the very first penalty of sin is shame. It drove Adam and Eve away from God. It drives you and me away from God. It drives you and me away from other people. And when we live with shame in our life, not conviction, when we live with shame, we're not fully accepting Jesus' reality, Jesus' purpose in our life. He came to kill shame. So what's the better way then? The better way is this, that in my struggle, we can go right here. What if instead of prayer and promise, I added another bubble to that chart that put in something like this? Just tell somebody. Just tell one other person, this is what I'm struggling with and this is what it is. It goes back to the vulnerability thing at the top, right? Like if I'm in the middle of this battle with sin, if I'm able to actually say to one other person, hey, I'm dying right here and I need help. The power of that is unbelievable in your life because it destroys shame. It destroys minimizing our sin It brings us into vulnerability. Last thing. I'm not fully accepting Jesus' purpose to defeat the power of sin in my life when I'm unwilling to share my story. When I'm unwilling to share my story. I'm going to go back to the original verse Paul said here. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 and 16. Stay with me because this grammar is a little weird. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy. This is why I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost, as the number one sinner in me, Jesus Christ can put me on demonstration, can put me on display, his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This goes beyond actually just you. Let me tell you something. When we live with vulnerability and brokenness, it's like a huge message to the world that this gospel is big enough for your brokenness and vulnerability. I live most of my life not this way. I live most of my life trying to make myself look pretty good. I was a pastor's kid. been in church my whole life, involved in church my whole life, I knew how to make it look really good. And I was dying inside. I was broken. I was stuck in the cycle of doom. Exhibit A. The power of embracing your brokenness to make the gospel come to life in your life is unbelievable. And I'll be honest, this sucks. It's not easy to do that. That's why we don't. But if you would, it would change your life. It would change our church. (laughs) 
So God, I pray that you would make us a people, a community of broken people. Because that's who you came to save. God, help us to not just put the walls up and the good Southern Christian thing on. Help us to be real. God, I pray against shame. I pray for people to be free from shame and to understand the forgiveness and the redemption that we have in you. In your name I pray, amen.